Carl Clausen is the morning host at Moody Bible Radio in Chicago and recently launched a new church called 180 Chicago. A popular speaker and author, Carl has done everything from completing the 1,100-mile Iditarod Trail sled dog race to coaching a track team in South Africa and leading the largest church in Alaska. He has a passion for people to live the life God intended each of us to live. Join us in welcoming Pastor Carl Clausen. Well, good chilly morning, Scottsdale. You know how to welcome in Alaska among you. Man, oh man, I remember the one year I lived in uh, Tempe when my dad was getting his PhD at Arizona State. I remember it well, and you've reminded me again of that year in sixth grade. Hey, to Grace Chapel and Venue and Cactus Campus and those watching online, welcome aboard. Good to have you with us today. We're going to bust into the Word. We're going to pray that we walk away never to be the same again. You with me on this? Do you believe God can do that? Yes, He absolutely can. And all you skeptics, I pray God blows you away today. I really do. I mean that in love. I didn't mean that as a shot. Strategically positioned, God wants to get us there. He really does. What's it look like? Well, I can tell you strategic positioning in almost anything in life is critical. You'd agree. I don't care if you're in the stock market or opening a new little store. I'm even getting your kids in a school and making sure they get the right friends. Strategic positioning is critical. Well, as we speak right now, there are about 100 million red salmon swimming around the Aleutian Islands through an area called the False Pass and headed to a little area called Bristol Bay. I know because I fished there for eight years. I had my own 32-foot gill netter for a couple of years, but I fished with a real highliner. He was an amazing guy, and I fished on the G&M. But here was the key. The goal in fishing commercially in Bristol Bay is to get as many of those red salmon, those sockeye of the 100 million that are going to be scooting through into the stern of your boat and go make market, sell it to those Japanese trawlers that are out there in the bay. That's the goal. And so you've got to get positioned well. You don't want to be what's called corked off, where you're, you've got your net right behind a fisherman that's got the brunt of those fish coming at them because you only get 5-10% of what squirts through. Sometimes we would have spotter pilots that would fly because they can see these vast, dark masses of hundreds of thousands of sockeye salmon swimming in the ocean. And they'd say, just 20 20 yards ahead, okay, throw it out. And I'd throw that buoy out of the stern. And we'd sometimes see that net, we call it smoke on the water. It would just literally light up with splashes of, and and the cork line When the mass of fish were coming through, it would just bend with the weight of thousands of fish just pouring into that net. It's awesome to watch. God wants to get you strategically positioned for abundant life, for the vision that he has for you, the gifting he wants to utilize in you. You can't leave it sitting on the table when you leave this earth. How's he going to do that? Man, have I got a story for you today. Right out of the scriptures. It's going to blow your mind. So prepare for that. I want to pray. Because your heart's got to be right for this one. 
By the way, we can pray with our eyes open. I just want to give you permission to do that right now. I don't do this very often, but right now. God, I thank you that you're here and we don't have to close our eyes. I can talk to you about everyone here. From this couple to those up there and those watching in these other venues, thank you. For that person online that's at home mopping up tears of how am I going to make it, God, I pray that you'd smoke them with your love today. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to tell you a story. Don't turn in your Bibles yet. Just sit back and enjoy. It's a big chunk of scripture. About 850 BC, Ben-Hadad was the king of the Syrians. And they're at war with northern Israel. King Jehoram's the king of northern Israel. And actually, they're set up all their, their, their head campus, as it were, was in Samaria. Ben-Hadad comes in and he encircles that city and he cuts off their supply line. And if you were going to win over a city, the way to do it is starve them out. And he did. He circled around that city and began to starve them out. Nothing in, nothing out, and they are hurting and no one's coming to help them. It got so bad that you'll find in the biblical account, and as a matter of fact, I do not think Hollywood could produce this and do it accurately without it being almost off the charts for ratings. What I'm about to tell you, it's almost hard to get your head around. But the starvation issue got so significant that a horse's head... Yeah, the head of a horse for the meat that might have been left in the cheekbones or whatever, chewing the, mar the marrow out of that skull, sold for 80 shekels, about 10 years working's wages. Dove dung, dove dung, you heard me right. Two quarts was selling for five shekels, six months wages. This city, Samaria, is under such siege, the economy is so wrecked that King Jehoram standing on the wall of the city and he's surveying the situation one early morning, and this is where it gets horrific. As he's walking along the wall, the text says, he hears a woman wailing, saying, Oh, king! Oh, king! Help me, king. And he finally turns around. He said, what's, what's wrong, woman? She says, king, I made a deal with my friend, that woman over there, that yesterday we would kill, boil, and eat my son. And that today we would kill, boil, and eat her son. We ate my son yesterday. Today she's hid her child. Come on, man. King Jehoram does what anyone with a scintilla of conscience would do. He tore his robe. He begins to get broken. But not for long, and this is key in this story here, because strategic positioning, I'm going to give you a little hint right now, doesn't have to do with partial brokenness. There's more to it than that. 
So in the midst of him being broken just a little bit, then he remembers that prophet Elijah's in this town and he's been promising me things are going to go better. And he says to his men, you go get that prophet. I'm going to kill him. I'm cutting his head off. I'm sick of this. And they go find him, or they tried to. One of the one of the king's men is going to find the prophet, and Elijah is talking with a group of men, and he said, "The king wants my head." Here comes one of his men right now. Put your foot against the door. Don't let him in. And that's where we pick up the story. If you got a Bible, great. Second Kings chapter seven. Second Kings chapter seven. It's a big chunk of scripture here, but it is going to be enlightening, man. If you don't have one, be sure to check it out later. It's an amazing story. In 2 Kings 7, the story picks up, and Elijah said, speaking through the closed door, hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel. What? 24 hours from now, something crazy is going to happen. It goes on, and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, now he's speaking through the door, check this out. If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? What a statement. If God were to open the windows of heaven and throw out all the goods, could that even save Samaria? Wow. But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Boy, that was going to be true. Now, watch this. Because now we get introduced to the main characters of the story. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. When I first read this through, I'm like, that is weird. That's like a, a bad joke. Like four pastors walked into a bar together. You know, one of those kind of deals. <laughs> And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we're going to die there. And if we sit here, we're going to die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. For if they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. It's kind of the win-win. It's like, boy, we might get grub. We might get killed. It's better than what we're doing here. They couldn't even go into Samaria because they were deemed unclean. So the Samarians are holding on to their ritualistic kind of religious hoop jumping. That's a free one for you. They've got them pinned outside the city, and now they're going, what are we going to do? Let's just go for it. We don't have anything else. Check this out. Verse 5. So they arose at twilight. It's getting dark. To go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. What? Check this. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. Did you hear this? God took four lepers shuffling their feet with horrendous skin diseases thinking maybe we'll get something to eat probably we're going to die but we're dying anyway he made eight feet sound like you get this he made eight shuffling feet sound like 
Samaria had contracted with two humongous armies. Wow. What a God, you guys. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, their scared to death. And their donkeys leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into the tent and ate and drank and carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Can you see what's going on here? These guys are like, can you believe this, Gern? Yeah, I know this is unbelievable, man. Then they said to one another, how profound is this? We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we're silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. How amazing is this picture? Do you know what they could have said? They couldn't care less about us. The whole city had discarded us. Let's just keep it for ourselves. And they said, we can't do it. There's something inside these guys that's different. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, uh, we came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was no one uh, to be seen or heard, nothing but the horses uh, tied at the donkeys <laughs> and, and tied in the tents. And he said, everything was there. Then the gatekeepers called out and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose at night and said to his servants, and then he goes on to tell this part. And this is what's amazing. He says, all right, just get two horsemen and take five horses. We're all dying anyway. That's just leaving a couple horses behind and go check it out. And the horsemen got out of the gate and they rode. And imagine as they turned around those, those lepers and watched them ride, they're talking to each other going, they're about to find out something amazing. And they rode. And you know what the horsemen found? Discarded clothing, discarded heavy cooking wear, all the way to the Jordan. They were throwing off everything that would weigh them down. He came back and said, sure enough, we have been set free. The city erupted, bolted out of that city. In the process of running to go plunder the Syrian camps, the man that stood outside the door when Elisha says in 24 hours, everything's totally revamped here totally changed. And he said, even if God opened the window in heaven and poured it all out, is that going to happen? Elijah said, you'll see it, but you won't taste it. And in the rush to go plunder the Syrians, he was trampled to death. What do we get out of this? Let's build it. Let's build it from the ground up because there's some principles in this that you've got to take with you. And if you do today, I promise you, God will have you strategically positioned like you've never, ever been before. I don't care how old or young you are. 
First thing you got to know is there's a little bit of leper in all of us, in all of us. It's there. But I want you to know this. Although sin is both unavoidable, it's, it's, it's both unavoidable and it's controllable. I think too many of us have uh, kind of misnamed who we are. And we uh, throw around phrases like, I'm a sinner saved by grace, don't you know? And I'm just, don't diminish the work of Christ like that. You just go to Romans 6. I hadn't even shared this last night. I feel called to share it today. Here we go. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things that you're now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. You see, here's the reality of the new birth miracle. When we deal with sin, or should I say when God deals with our sin, yes, we're still going to have it afflict us. But it no longer has to control us because it's his power to eradicate it within us, not ours. There's a little bit of leper in all of us, and there's three different ways to really deal with sin. You might know these and recognize them. The first one is to justify it. To justify it, though, it crushes credibility. And can I be this bold? One of the most dangerous things that we can do to our children or grandchildren. I'll flip this around. Right now, it's a little sober. One of the most dangerous things that we can do is to recognize I'm missing the mark. Because sin is an archery term. It means to miss the mark. To be missing the mark in any way and somehow justify it. It kills our credibility. You can haul kids off to church till the cows come home. But justify sin. That kills credibility. Listen, I've been married 30 plus years. I got two wonderful kids. I want to tell you that what I've just said, I promise you, is true. How else do we deal with sin? We can ignore it. We can. But if we ignore it, we separate ourselves from the very power and the ability that God wants to give us to produce fruit in our life. One of my favorite passages in all the scripture is mind-boggling. I shared it here about five years ago. Jesus said in John 15, he said, I'm the vine. Let's pretend this is the vine. We'll pretend this is fruit in just a second. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branch. If you abide in me, you're going to produce fruit. Let's say this is fruit. This is really simple. Western Christianity has become so focused on producing fruit that we've lost proximity to Jesus Christ. And then it's fake fruit. Because it's all about him. When we have proximity to Jesus, we just look over one day, and because we're focused on really hanging with our Savior and growing with him humbly, we look over one day and go, look at that, what Jesus did in my life. 
But when we ignore sin, you know what we do? We cause separation from our Savior. We can only be transformed by recognizing, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. But we got to keep living every hour. I need thee. This is living. We ignore it. We lose. So what do we do, Carl? We own it. Because when we own sin, as scary as that can be, we leave a vision for children, our coworkers, people around us, but even better than that, it scrubs our soul. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's good. And to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Every time we own sin, it's like God saying, come on over here. I'm going to scrub your soul and show you how you can see clearly again my vision for your life. You might say, Carl, you mean to tell me if I own sin, I'm going to see what God even wants for, for me even more? Oh, I promise you that. If you'll but muster the courage to come before God and people and say, I'm owning that. The lights come on in our life and we see the big, holy, audacious plan that God had for you when you were in mama's womb. And it's real. Best illustration I can have for this was um, commercial fishing in Bristol Bay. One of the key things to get strategically positioned where those fish are going to be is you got to see out your cabin windows. And after, after two, three weeks of fishing, the saltwater scum that sticks on those windows is just nasty, man. It's, so, it's almost impossible to get off because we're, we're in 32-foot vessels and we're plowing through breakers. And sometimes it's more than just sea splash. It's blue water. We are in the ocean plowing submarine and through this thing, looking, waiting for the windows to bust out. And I'm stopped one day, and it's kind of, it's kind of this flat, man. And uh, Mike Motorella, good Italian dude, he motors up beside us, and he says, hey, what's, uh, what's going on? You trying to clean those windows? I said, yeah, man, we cannot see anything out of these things. He says, I got something for you. I still don't know what the concoction was. It's like Italian Rain-X or something. I don't know what it was. But, man, I cleaned that thing up, and it just... All of a sudden, we could see everything. Can I tell you something really cool? In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, and I'm modifying it here. You'll have to look at it later. But he, he says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may see the riches of the inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. When we, and I, I got to do this, gentlemen, you want to raise kids, gentlemen, you want to have grandkids that look up and go, that's my daddy right there. You got to be a man who's willing to say, 
I was wrong on that deal. And I'm owning it. I'm manning up on this thing. That is biblical manhood, and it will shape your legacy in ways you'd never stink and imagine. The eyes of your heart will see, and it will be mind-boggling. Well, there's a little bit of leper in all of us. But here's the best news. When we hit bottom, we're strategically positioned for grace. See, here's the deal. Bottom isn't bad in God's economy. And I often do this. And I I don't know that there's, the older I get, the more I do it. Because I think, the more I just realize, Jesus said, he said, I'm the rock. He said this because, he said, you that read this word of mine and put it into practice, you'll be like a house that's built on this rock. And here's what I've learned. I've learned that bottoming out is not something to be avoided, it's something to be embraced because when God takes us to the end of ourselves, we're strategically positioned to be resting on his power like never before. The greatest men and women I know in this world are men and women who have been brought to the point where they are in touch with their desperate need for God. See, in God's economy, the way up is down. This is living. Just say a word to some of you that have come into this room today. And you know the situation. I don't even need to list it, but there's something in in your life today. There's a relationship that is severed. There's there's a, a wayward kid. There's an addiction that you've been battling with alone and it's been kicking your spiritual keister your whole life long and you have waved a white flag and you're like, well, I'm going to get like 80% of my life squared away, but that one I'm just going to let go. I need you to hear me right now. When you feel an embrace, I can't do it. I want to heartily tell you, you are strategically positioned for God to finally do something in your life. That's God's way, man. And then you need to know this. When we find that we are at the bottom, utterly in need of God, and that broken isn't bad, then we'll realize that our healthiest friendships are found with other broken people. Isn't that amazing? But it's true. Do you know what brought these four men together, these four lepers together? Not families, not hobbies, not industry. Leprosy brought them together. They were united around a skin disease, which is a metaphor for sin and people that are aware that they have it and that they need God. When you find friendships and relationships with other broken people, 
You're going to find these three things to be true. You have no one to impress. You have nothing to defend. And there is not a thing to prove in this world. Nothing. I got a tough one to share with you right now, so I want you to brace yourself. This is tough, but I'm going to tell you. I want you to imagine we're driving to the airport because I'm leaving today. So just imagine you are with me and you're asking me a question, Carl, what about this brokenness thing? Is that really critical? And I would say again, it's critical. Embrace it whenever you feel at the end of yourself. Just go, God, you must be ready to do something, and I'm ready to let you. Don't buy yourself out of it. Don't medicate yourself out of it. Go right to the rock and let him change you. But then I would tell you this. You got to run with other broken people, and I'm going to be this candid. Sometimes God's greatest promises are never realized in your life because you're partnered with the wrong people. Now, this is really brutal. Just because someone goes to church doesn't mean they are going to assist you in your brokenness to take hold of everything that God has for you. You need to be a broken person for other broken people, and you need to partner with broken people. It wasn't industry, it wasn't hobbies, it wasn't family, it was leprosy that brought them together. And it's brokenness and broken people. That's who you need as your friends. I can go anywhere in scripture and prove this to you. The issue of brokenness, come on, just, just go to... Uh, Romans 5, 1 through 5, go to 2 Corinthians 4, go to 2 Corinthians 12, look at the life of Job. It goes on and on and on. Scriptures replete with it. But I got to tell you, one of the most profound things about friendships is in Psalm 1. Let me just read this to you. Three verses right out of the chute. The psalmist says this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is, like a plant, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Check this out. And its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. Let me tell you how I would translate this. It's this simple. Sometimes in life, it's better to walk all alone with just you and God in his precious word than to try to walk into the abundant promises of God with fools, mockers, or scoffers that are holding you back. My daughter's in I.O. psychology. She's getting a PhD in organizational psychology. One of the most common things they've found that is empirical data that we don't even have to look at the Bible at? Check this out. We are the net average of our five closest friends. Find broken people and walk with them. I gotta say this to you. I 
I'm not, man, I'm getting a warning cry here again from the Spirit this morning, the Holy Spirit who's real, by the way, and lives in us. I truly, in my heart, I'm not trying to beat you up, and I hope that you feel, I, my heart is to give you a vision for what God can do, and he wants to. couple more things I got to give you and I so appreciate your heart because I sense the Holy Spirit's doing a good work here so let's just stay in this tone right now where we got a heart that's listening to the Lord because we got to know this too God does his best work when we're utterly dependent on him now here's what I want to tell you about this best isn't always big but there's never big without best. Did you hear that? God does his best work when we're utterly dependent. And the only chance that we're going to experience what God has for us is when we absolutely trust him in him alone. I know the temptation is to be others dependent or self-dependent, but we've got to be God-dependent. My favorite king in all the scriptures is a guy named King Josiah. I love this guy. Can I tell you quickly about him? He came to power at the age of eight. He was raised by a crazy man, and his grandpap was no better. Manasseh and Ammon were crazy kings. They were sacrificing firstborn kids on altars to false gods. When Josiah came to power, he was eight years old. At the age of 16, the scripture says, he began to follow the God of his father, David, meaning he didn't listen to any of the counsel around him. Probably at 16, he's like, every other king's dying and it's not looking good. I'm going after wiser counsel that's already dead and gone. He walked alone for a while, for a while, alone with God. Alone with God, not self-dependent, not others-dependent, God-dependent, Josiah did. And he told Shaphan, the secretary, and Hilkiah, the priest, go rebuild the temple. And they go in to rebuild the temple. I got chills everywhere. They go in to rebuild the temple, and the secretary and the priest come out, and they say, King, we have found, while we were rebuilding the temple, a book. It's the law. It's the Pentateuch. It had been missing in Israel for three to four hundred years. When you're not God dependent, everything goes off the rails, man. He said, read it to me. You know what God does with God dependent people? Utterly dependent people. He said, read it to me. And then he's reading it. Josiah goes, oh no, tore his robe, said, we're in trouble. Let's go find that prophetess, Hulda. She's a good woman. She'll tell us what's going on. And they truck over to Hulda's home. And Hulda says, yep, it was looking grim. But God has said, because of your utter dependence on him, I'm sparing your entire generation. What a God. And that's his promise to you today. 
I know it's tough. I know it's embarrassing. I know sometimes it's, you're almost embarrassed before God. You know he knows, but you don't want to talk to him about all those missing marks in your life. But I want to tell you, the Holy Spirit is calling you right now, in this moment, to say, oh God, if it's true, that through four lepers' lives, you're revealing to me the beauty of being utterly dependent and that here is where I'm strategically positioned for the life I've only dreamed of. Let it be. You will not be put to shame. You will not be put to shame. God will come through. You linger there. He'll be there. I got to tell you, the last thing that these four lepers teach us that and they go into the hall of fame of faith as four lepers. They don't even have a name, but boy, have they got a story. And the final lesson is when we realize we're blessed and we're a beautiful mess. I think that was a series Jamie did here not too long ago, as a matter of fact. Be a blessing back. Listen, I'm going to bring it all together now because this is, if there's a posture of abundant life, no, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God wants to do through those who love him. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, more than you could ask or even imagine kind of stuff. Here it is. You risk it enough to say, I'm coming clean on everything. Here it is. I need you. And you say, I lift a hand of utter dependence on you. And like those four lepers, I want to receive everything that you have for me, the wisdom, the counsel, the direction, the blessing, everything that you have. And oh God, I won't let it stick to me. I'm going to be a conduit of your blessing the rest of my life. This is the posture of great men and women. This is the posture where children look up and go, that's my mom. That's my daddy. That's my aunt. That's my CEO. I want you to pray with me right now. Close your eyes, but mainly bow your hearts right now, all around this auditorium. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I thank you that there are people here that are being called by your Holy Spirit to do this now. And I praise you, Lord, from the bottom of my heart. This is the coolest thing to see your Holy Spirit work in power.
and I give you thanks. Oh God, we need you. Thank you for four guys with skin disease to show us the power of being strategically positioned. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to do something here. We're going to do it all together. I want everyone right now, and those of you that are watching right now, everyone to your feet, everyone to your feet right now. No one moving other than to just stand to your feet. Everyone to your feet. And in the spirit of this, I'm not going to ask you to kneel, but I am going to ask you, we did this several years ago here and God did a beautiful thing. There's something about the posturing of ourselves before God that is powerful, man. So I'm going to ask you right now, everyone across this auditorium, as a symbol of surrender and being positioned to him, to just raise one hand straight to God. Everyone here, everyone. Some of you are saying, I've never done this. That's good for you. Trust me. Now keep this hand here all across this auditorium as a symbol of surrender. Make this song a prayer of positioning. So we sing together. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again for I believe in the name of Jesus and I believe in you and I believe you rose again and I Three. 